We appreciate very much you being here tonight. We realize that you could be other places doing other things. There's plenty of things to do in Columbia, and but yet uh, we're glad that you chose to come and to worship God with us this evening. Uh, I'll warn you before I get into the lesson that my this PowerPoint does not that I use does not match up with the computer very good, so all the animations and stuff are gone. So we'll we'll try to get through that. Hope it doesn't uh, any other glitches within it. If it's just animation, that's not any big deal. So hopefully it changes all right, and, and so we'll be able to see that. But we do indeed appreciate you being here. I really appreciate the church asking me to come and to be a part of this uh, studies uh, throughout the week. And uh, so I, I really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate the confidence you have in, in me of asking me to come and to, uh, to share some things with you from the Word of God. And so I, I really do indeed uh, appreciate that. I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about being a disciple of of the Lord. You know, the Greek word, the the common Greek word, maathetes, is the more common of the Greek words that's used for the word disciple. We find the word used 275 times in the Bible, the word disciple or disciples. It's only used one time in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. The rest of the times it's used within the New Testament itself. And that Greek word that I mentioned, I'm sure I didn't pronounce that right, but... Uh, that's close to how it's uh, pronounced, at least. That word is used about 268 of those 274 times or so that it's used within the New Testament. And, of course, the word itself is defined, we usually define it as simply as a pupil or a learner. But that's not the only thing that's involved in being a disciple. In the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, not only does it say that it's a pupil or a learner, but it's one that would adhere to the principles of the one, the master that's actually teaching us. And so that's kind of the ideal or the thought that's expressed behind the word disciple. Let me ask you this. Would you consider yourself a disciple of Christ? Well, why would you, why would you consider that? You know, you know, you can simply wear the name. You can call yourself a disciple just like you can call yourself a Christian. But does that make you one? Just simply because you call yourself a disciple or you call yourself a Christian? Well, really, if I am a disciple, there are some things that I would do that would indicate that I am a disciple of the Lord. And so I want us to think a little bit about that as we study together tonight when we look at the word disciple. That's uh, John 1, verses 30, beginning in verses 35 through verses 43. We'll read down through verses 50, uh, about 50, uh, 51. He said, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He said, The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, He said, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. And that was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated the stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said, Follow me. Now let's read the next a few verses, verses 44 through 51. 
So now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He said, You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Really, there's some characters, some of these characters that we look at here, they have differing views of Jesus. One of the things, obviously, that John says, one of the first things that he said he was the Son of God, and then he pointed out the fact that he was the Lamb of God as well. And then, of course, there's Andrew. You remember Andrew? What did Andrew call Jesus? Well, he said, we have found the Messiah. So differing views that these men have concerning Jesus Christ as they approach him. You remember Philip, he's the one that found him, and he said, now he's the one, he said he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But that's not the only thing that he said within the text itself. He said, we have found him of whom Moses and the law also, and also the prophets wrote of. And so this is what he said. And then Nathaniel eventually says, he said, you are the son of God. He said, you are the king of Israel. So now there are four different men that say four different things about Jesus. One says he's the Lamb of God, he is the Son of God. One says he's the Messiah. One says he's the one that Moses and the law had prophesied and told us about. And another says he is indeed the King of Israel. But within this text, I want us to notice some things that really help us to identify really what a disciple of the Lord is all about. Remember what said in Acts 11 in verses 26, he said, The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So now if I'm a disciple, that must mean if I'm a disciple of Christ that I'm really a Christian. I'm a servant of the Lord. And so what does it mean to be a disciple? Now let's notice these verses together and see exactly what a disciple is all about. This text tells us who really is our inspiration to live righteously and upright lives. Notice he says, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And so he was the Lamb of God, and he is our inspiration. I like something that Frank L. Cox said in his little book. He said, in the midst of a humdrum experiences of life, we need someone to inspire us. People are failing not for lack of ability, but because of lack of inspiration. Do you think that's true? You know, every single one of us have some ability, don't we? And we have different abilities. We know that from Matthew 25. We don't all have the same ability. But every single one of us have some ability. We have ability that we should be using in services to God. But not all people are inspired to use that ability that they have that's been given to them by God. And so really Jesus should be our inspiration. He should inspire us to live as a disciple of His. 
And the Bible is filled with evidence that would actually prove that that is indeed the case. Take, for instance, the Apostle John. He said, And that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, uh, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen, I'll have to pick that up. Let me get there to this particular verse. He said, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So now, if you notice some things that John says here, look at some of the things that he says in the very beginning. He said, That which we have heard. First of all, he said, we've heard what he said. That is the eternal life that he's talking about in this particular verse. He said, that which we have seen with our eyes. Not only have we heard what he said, he said, but we have seen him with our eyes. But I want you to notice what he says next. He said, which we have looked upon. That almost seems like the same idea or the same expression, but it's really not. It's a different thought. That which we have looked upon, John really is saying what we've done is not only have we looked at him, but we have inspected him. We've looked closely at him. We've examined him. And so, really, this is what inspired John to live in services to the Lord. You remember, John was the one that had been banished to the island of Patmos. And he was glad to do that because of his faith in the Lord. And the reason that he was willing to do that was because he knew who Jesus was. He knew that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. And it inspired him to live a righteous and holy and upright life. He said, not only have we looked upon, he said, but our hands have handled concerning the word of the word of life. And so John obviously was very impressed with the thought of being able to see Jesus. And so here was a person that was inspired to live righteously and upright. You know, think about those that should inspire us. One of the things that we can look at, if you want to turn to your Bibles, you might turn with me to Hebrews 12. Obviously not all this is revealed on this particular slide. Uh, but I want you to notice something that is said here. He said, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. It's kind of interesting, one of the things that he says. He says, looking unto Jesus, he said he's the author and finisher of our faith. And then he says, consider him. Consider him. But you know, in the first part of this verse, it tells us that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are those witnesses that he's talking about here? Well, that's all those men and women that was mentioned in Hebrews 11. Now, you think about that. Did they live successful lives? Were they successful as they lived their lives here upon this earth? Now, how did they succeed? Well, they succeeded because of their faith, their faith in God. Think of all the things that they were able to do. Think of what they were able to resist. Think of how they lived lives that would bring honor and glory to God. He said, seeing that we're encompassed about or surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. 
You know, I get the idea that one of the things that he's talking about, at least as I relate this, is here's a runners running in a long-distance race, a marathon. Remember the Olympics, the last few rounds that they run, the last few laps that they run in that race, they run it inside of a stadium. And they enter the stadium, and when they enter the stadium, the crowd is in the stadium, and they're rooting on those that enter that stadium to run that race successfully. Now, who are all the men and the women in the stadium here? All the men and women in the stadium are all those that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. Now, who is it that's running the last race? That, that would be you and I. And what they're doing is they're telling us that you can succeed. You can be successful in that. You know, these people should inspire us. These are not superhuman beings. These are men and women just like you and I, but they were men and women of great faith, and they were successful in the way that they lived their lives. And so they, live in, they lived in such a way that should inspire us that we too can succeed in life. We too can be successful in being a disciple of Jesus Christ because they were successful in the way that they loved and served God. But eventually he tells them to look away from all those men and women of faith in Hebrews 11 because every single one of them had their problems and difficulties in life, didn't he? But then who does he tell you to look to? Look to the one who really can inspire you. Look at what he went through. He said, let us run with endurance that race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the one that should inspire us. And he does inspire us as we look at his life. He was faithful and loyal to the Lord. And so he should inspire us to want to live for him as we think of how he lived and how he successfully served his Father that we too can be disciples of the Lord. And He'll be there with us. He encourages us and He inspires us to live for the Lord. So there's the disciples' inspiration. Now think a little bit about the disciples' business. As we think about the inspiration, certainly we are inspired by those men and women of Hebrews 11, but especially when we think about Jesus and how he lived his life above sin and was always busy doing the Father's will. The disciples' business said then two of the disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now what is the disciples' business? It's to follow the Lord, isn't it? You know, that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to make sure that we follow him. You know, love for him should really compel us to service. Don't you think so? You know, love is a great motivating factor, isn't it? In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, he said, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You know, this word compel is an interesting word. You know, Mr. Thayer, in his word study, he said it meant to urge or to impel, tropically, he says, or figuratively, of the soul. You know, the love of Christ urges us to live right. Wouldn't you agree with that? Think of how much He loved us. And you think about what little sacrifice that He asked of me. Is that too much? Especially when we think about His great love that He had for us. 
Think about what He went through for us. Think about the fact that He suffered and died so that you and I could have the forgiveness of our sins. That, that should urge us and impel us to serve Him. But I like something else. This is the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament of what it says <clears throat> concerning this word compel. He said the love of Christ controls or dominates Paul, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, so that he has to live for Christ and not for self. So that he has to live for Christ and not for self. It controls him. You know, really the love of Christ should control us, shouldn't it? It should be that which urges us and impels us to do what's right and to live right, to live upright, godly lives when we think about what he's done for us and the great sacrifice that he made on our behalf. That if one died for all, then all died. Who is it that's worthy of death? Well, that would be us. But yet we see that Christ died for us. Instead of us having to die because of our sins, Christ is the one that paid the ultimate price. Isn't it? He's the one that died in our place so that you and I could live. Shouldn't that be a motivating factor of why we love and serve the Lord? Sure it should. And so the disciples' business is to follow Him. And it's not as hard to follow Him when we think about the great love that He had for us and the great example that He set before us. It should urge us and impel us. You know, it certainly requires a sacrifice on our behalf as we think of this. And He said to them, He said, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Luke 9, verses 23 through verse 25. Look what he says. If anyone desires to come after me, I have to deny self. I have to crucify self. I have to put self to death. It's no longer about me, is it? If I'm really a disciple of the Lord, this is my business. My business is to follow my Lord and to do whatever it is that He tells me to do and to do it in the way that He tells me to do. I have to follow His teaching. I have to follow His instruction. And part of that is denying self. It's no longer about me. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. Paul said, my life, my life now is live to serve my Lord. That, that's how I live my life. And, and that should be true of us as well. If I'm really a disciple, this is my business. My business is to follow my Lord. He's my master. He's the one that loved me. He's the one that died for me. And I have to understand that there are some sacrifices that I have to make. He said, take up his cross. You know, many people point out the fact that the cross is that on which Christ obviously was crucified. It's an instrument that's used to inflict death. And, of course, the death and dying here would be the crucifying of oneself. But I don't think that's the only thing that's involved in that. I think what else is involved in that is bearing any shame or reproach that's involved in taking up that cross. See, it's the taking up of that cross. It's the shame and the reproach that's involved in serving the Lord. You know, I have to be willing to bear that. Do you think people will ridicule us because we believe in the Lord? 
Because we believe in assembling with the saints. That we, believe in, that we believe in partaking of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. That we believe in giving. That we believe in singing. We believe in all of those things because the Bible says that we need to do those things. It's required of us. Will there be people who will ridicule us because of that? Well, sure. But that's part of taking up my cross and following Him. If I desire to save my life, then I'll lose it, as he says. But whoever loses his life for my sake in serving him, then he says they will live. What profit, he asks, is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? If I gain everything in the world and yet I lose my soul, I've lost the only thing that I have that is of any value whatsoever. Of any value whatsoever. Could you name something that you have that's more valuable than your soul? Is there anything that you have that's more valuable than your soul? There's nothing that you have that's more valuable. And so that's why it's so important for me to be a disciple of the Lord. And that's really my, my business. My business is to follow Him, to serve Him. You know, many are unwilling, and, and we can see that. Here in Luke 18, verses 22 through 25, he said, so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, he said, you still lack one thing. You remember this is the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. And he asked the Lord, he said, what is it that I may do that I can have eternal life? He said, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And he said, you'll have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. But then it says, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that, that he became sorrowful, he said to him, how hard... Is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle man to enter the kingdom of God. Was he willing to do that? Was he willing to sell all that he had and give it to the poor? You know what Jesus could see in this rich young ruler was the idol that he had in his heart. He loved money. He loved material things better than he loved the Lord. Could he be his disciple then? No. He couldn't be his disciple. Now, he may claim that he was his disciple, but he really wasn't. Just like you and I, we can claim to be a disciple of the Lord. That doesn't make us a disciple. Though. The disciple's business is to follow the Lord and make any sacrifice that's required. That's how I can tell if I'm a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And think about the disciples' quest. He said, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So he first found his own brother Simon. What is it that you know about Andrew? How much do you know about him? Know much about him? There's not much revealed about him, is there? But one thing he was, and that was he was evangelistic, wasn't he? The very first thing that he did was to find his, his brother, Simon. You know, most people, the only thing they know about Andrew is that he's Simon Peter's brother. That's about the extent of what we know about him, isn't it? Don't know a whole lot about him. 
But this is one thing that we do know about him. And one of the things that we can see about Andrew was that he manifested wisdom. I really like something that's said here in Proverbs 11 in verses 30. He said, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Would you consider Andrew wise? You know, what greater thing could you do for a person than to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ? What greater thing could you do for your children than to lead them to the Lord? Is there something greater you could do for them? There's not anything greater than that you could do for them. When I first started preaching, I had something to happen to me that that I, I will never forget unless I just lose my mind totally, I suppose. One of the first gospel meetings that I ever preached in was over in Bedford County, and there was a lady sitting about halfway back in the old Shabbable Mills church building, and I got to see that lady walk out and walk down the aisle and sit on the front and hear her make the confession that she believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and to watch her be baptized into Christ. I couldn't baptize her into Christ. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. That little lady that was sitting back there was my mother. And I watched her come forward. And I was so emotional that I couldn't even baptize my own mother into Christ. But that's okay. It's not important who baptizes somebody into Christ. I'm going to tell you, that wasn't important at all. But it was the fact that she obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. What greater thing could a son do than teach his mother the gospel of Jesus Christ? one of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my entire life, to see my mother and see my son obey the gospel. You know what you want for your mom and dad, for your children? I had a long talk with my son just the other day about that. You know, I'm away from my son. I don't get to see him as often as I'm concerned about him on, on occasion. I wonder if he's as faithful as he could be and should be. We have those three little grandchildren, and there's nothing that I want more than for them to be obedient to the gospel when they reach the age that they are accountable and they can believe that Jesus is the Christ of something. That should be all of our quest, shouldn't it? I like something that Professor Johnson uh, e. Johnson said in pulpit commentary, this is his comments, concerning Proverbs 11 and verses 30, he said, All that the good man says and does becomes a source of blessing and life, a tree of life to many. He exercises an attractive power and gathers many souls to his side for the services of God and the cause of truth. See, that's the reason why he said the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life. It's the tree of life to other people. Because he's busy trying to share God's Word with them. We're busy trying to share God's Gospel, the Lord's Gospel with other people, so that they can believe that Gospel and so that they can be saved. That should be all of our quest. Do you think that's the reason why churches are not growing like maybe that they should this day and time? It's because we don't have that intense desire to share the Gospel with other people? That we're not nearly as concerned about the lost as we should be? 
if we're true disciples of the Lord, then we're concerned about others. We're concerned about their soul. We're concerned whether they have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can be saved. That's what the Lord expects us to be. It really shows what's truly important, doesn't it? Said that a woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? In John 4, verses 28 and 29. This is where Jesus was at Jacob's well, you remember, near the city of Sychar. And while his disciples have gone into the city of Sychar to get food, you remember that he encounters this woman who had come out to draw water from the well. And he asked her a drink. She's amazed that Jesus would even have anything to say to her. Her being a woman, first of all, and then a Samaritan woman on top of that. She was amazed that he would even say anything to her. But you know, that's exactly who Jesus came to save, wasn't it? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He wanted to share his message with every person. It didn't matter who they were. And so she's amazed, and she goes off into the city and tells the people in the city, could this be the Messiah? And it was the Messiah, wasn't it? It was the one that they too had been looking for. He talked about the fields being white into harvest, and many people believe that it was the number of people that were coming out of the city of Sychar out to hear Jesus. As he looked and as he would see the people in the field that would be coming out to him, it was like grain that was ready for harvest. He said he was about his father's business. He was more concerned about teaching them the gospel than he was to eat the food that they had brought to him. He showed what was truly important. And if we're true disciples of the Lord, then we feel the same way. We've got to feel that same emotion, that same feeling, that this is what's really important. It's really important that we share the gospel with those that are lost, the people that we come in contact with. He told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Does it matter the color of a man's skin? I had a lady come to me and talk to me a little bit ago, and she's talking to me about her husband. He came several nights when I was in a meeting in a, a place here in Middle Tennessee. And she said, I really thought he was going to obey the gospel, but she said he has one problem. She said he's really a racist. And how sad that is. But you know, we have people like that. And I told her, I said, well, really, he should obey the gospel and seek the forgiveness and work at conquering and overcoming that, that problem that he has in his heart. The Lord can help us do things that we sometimes can't do by ourselves. He hasn't as of yet, but I hope sometime in the future that he'll do that. Because, And I hope he'll see himself lost, and that regardless of the color of a man's skin, that they have a soul that needs saving as well. 
There should be no social barriers for us. And there should be no racial barriers. There should be no educational barriers. Because the Lord didn't make it. Did he? The Lord wants to save every person. And He wants us to give them the opportunity to be saved. That should be our quest. And if we're truly the disciples that we should be, then certainly that is indeed the case. You know, one of the things that we can see that the New Testament church was busy, busy teaching. In Acts 2, remember in verses 46, it said, So continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They were busy. They were busy trying to teach other people the gospel of Jesus Christ. The next verse is Acts 8, verses 4. He said, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. This is when the persecution of Saul was happening and going on. And as a result of that persecution, instead of stopping the spread of Christianity, all it did was to aid it, and they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Even Paul said the reason that he was in prison you remember he said it's happened for the furtherance of the gospel in the Philippian letter. Though he was in prison, he said it didn't stop the spread of Christianity. He said it actually aided it. And later, you remember who he wrote about in Philippians 4? Saints in Caesar's household. Caesar there would have been Nero. And he said there are saints in Nero's household. Had to be a dangerous thing to be a Christian, to be a saint, to be a disciple of the Lord in such a man's house. But that's exactly what had happened. And most likely they were there because of the apostle, because of the apostle Paul. So the disciples' quest is to be busy teaching, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then there's the disciples' challenge, I think. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was he a little prejudiced, you think? Did he think anybody good could come from that city? You know, he was from the other side of the tracks. Well, but I want you to notice what Philip said. Philip said, come and see. Come and see. You know, one of the things, sometimes we're challenged about, about Christ. You know, they were challenged sometimes about Christ and how did they respond they responded by directing people to the Word of God. You know, Christ's goodness was challenged. He said, which of you convict me of sin? He said, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? In John 8, verses 46. You ever have people that question you concerning your faithfulness to Christ? And why are you faithful to Him? Why do you serve Him? Why do you love Him? Can you answer them? You know, the challenge to us is, is to be ready always to give an answer of the reason the hope that's within us. He said, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So when the goodness of God is challenged, we direct people to what the Word of God says. Here's a person that lived without sin. This is the reason why we serve him. This is the reason why he's our master. The second thing we think about, what 
What about if his deity is challenged? And truly, did uh, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Did he prove himself to be who he said he was? Did he prove himself to be the Christ? Did he prove himself to be the Messiah? Did he prove himself that we should listen to his words because of the miracles that he performed? These things prove that he was who he said that he was, that he was divine. And then in Luke 22, verses 70, so then they all said to him, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. This is the Sanhedrin council who asked concerning the fact of whether he not, whether or not he was the Son of God. If his deity is challenged, we simply look to the Bible and prove from the Bible that the miracles that he performed that proved that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. What about the historical Jesus? If we one challenge the historical fact that, that Jesus ever lived and exists, well, we would look to historical records and what those historical records tell us. Josephus, in the Antiquities of the Jew, book 18, chapter 3, paragraph 3, page 379, says this. He said, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was one of a uh, doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. He was that long-awaited Messiah that they had been looking for. Historical record proves to us that Jesus is exactly who he said that he was, that he was indeed the Son of the living God. And so the disciples' challenge is to answer all the questions that might be raised concerning our Lord and our Savior, and our faith, and why we believe what we believe, why we practice what we believe. We simply direct people to what the book itself says. If the Word is challenged, His Word is challenged. He said, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Jesus is simply pointing out, He said, These are not my words. He said, These are the Father's. He said, the things that I am revealing to you are the things that the Father has said. That's what I am saying to you. And he says, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Do you accept what the Bible says? We sometimes, in dealing with people, they say, well, you know, I know that's what it says, but, well, if that's what it says, then what should you do? You should believe it, and you should obey it. Because you understand that if I reject it, and if I don't receive it, if I don't live by it, then I'm going to be held accountable for the fact that I have rejected what the Lord has said to me. And so there's the disciples' challenge as well. And let's think in closing of the disciples' possibilities. You know, there are some things that we can look at that are possible because of God's great love for us. And he brought him to Jesus, and now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated to stone. He said, Now this is what you're going to become. You think he was that now? I don't think so. 
I think he was anything but that. Initially, certainly, he was no stone, was he? He was not one that one could really, the Lord really could even depend upon. So the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and then Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Was he that stone then? Not then, was it? And then in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, said, The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. He said, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. When you return to me. I always find it interesting in John's Gospel that the Lord asked Peter three times, He said, Peter, do you love me? Each time, how does Peter respond? He says, oh, Lord, you know I love you. You remember the use of the word love within that text? The first two times he uses the word Jesus does, the word agape love. Peter uses the word phileo love in all three times that he answers the Lord. First two times the Lord says, agape, love me, Peter. Peter, phileo, love you, Lord. And then finally, the third time, the Lord uses that same word. Agape love is a more, more than just a love of emotions and feelings. It's a love of devotion and dedication and obedience regardless of the circumstance. It's the kind of love that the Lord requires to love those who are our enemies. It's not tender emotions and feelings that he's commanding. But it's a benevolent kind of love. It's a love that's willing to submit and a love that's willing to obey. But what kind of person did Peter become, though? Initially, was he that stone? Well, no, he wasn't that stone to begin with, was he? But look at what was possible for Peter through the grace of God. By the grace of God, Peter could change. Do you remember how Peter died, according to historical records, mind you? How did he die? You've read that, I'm sure, haven't you? You're like me, I've read that. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. Because of his faith. See what he became. Oh, he wasn't that initially. But look at the changes that was wrought in his life as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it is God's power to save, but it's also God's power to change. Remember the change that was wrought in John? said, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom they gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. That name simply seemed to denote fiery, destructive zeal that may be likened to a thunderstorm. What did John eventually become known as? The Apostle of Love. Do you remember when Jesus was determined to go to the city of Jerusalem and he went to one of the Samaritan cities? And you remember when they rejected Jesus as he entered that Samaritan city? And do you remember who it was that asked him, said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume these people? Do you remember who it was that asked that of him? 
One of them was John. One of them was John. It was James and John. He said, no, that's not my reasoning coming. Do you think John eventually realized that? Could John change? Yes, he did change. He could and he did change. And that tells us of the possibilities for us as well. That we can change also. And the Lord certainly expects us to change. Paul's past life, also in his present. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, he said, For I am the least of the apostles whom I am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Look at what Paul says in this verse. He said, I'm the least of all the apostles. He said, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. And he said, the reason that I'm not worthy to be called that, he said, it's because of what I have done in the past. Look what I did. I persecuted the church of, of my Lord. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, because of God's grace and His abundant grace that's been bestowed upon me, that He allowed me to receive forgiveness, and I'm willing to change. Now look what He became as a result of that. He said, I labored more abundantly than all the others because of what God has done for me. The disciples' possibility to change. Have you ever done anything in your life that as you look back on it that you regret that you did? To ask that is to answer, didn't it? And the affirmative. I think all of us have. If I had some things to do over, I'm going to tell you I would do them a lot differently than I, than I did. I've apologized to Marshall numbers of times since he's got grown of how I, I feel that I failed him as a father when he was growing up. And I'm thankful that he could always hug me and tell me, he said, Dad, you always meant it for the best. God gives us other opportunities, doesn't he? He gives us opportunities to change. And so we see our possibilities because of the grace of God. Now then, let's close the lesson with this thought. Are you really a disciple of the Lord? If you are, you have inspiration to live righteously and upright because of our Master, Jesus Christ. Our business is to follow the Lord regardless. Our quest is to share that message with other people. Our challenge is to answer any questions concerning Him whom we love and whom we serve, whether it's His goodness, His deity, or whether it's the reason of the hope that's within us. But then there's the possibility that He's made for all of us and given us all the opportunity to change, to become everything that we possibly can be and to be a faithful servant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So are you a disciple? If not, you certainly can become one. As we pointed out in the very beginning, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So to become a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins and to confess your faith that Jesus is Lord. To be immersed in water so that you might receive the remission of your sins as you're baptized into his death. It was in his death that he shed his blood, and it's there that you receive the benefits of that shed blood. Then you arise a new creature in Christ Jesus to walk in newness of life, to be his disciple, to follow him, to love him, and to serve him all the days of your life. And that when he returns, he'll take you home to spend eternity with him in heaven. Are you his disciple? If not, why not become one? If unfaithful, return to him. Forgiveness is offered to all of us that need it through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're here in subject, we hope that you'll come. Make your way to the front and let your wishes be made known as we stand together and sing this hymn. Won't you come, please?